Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Scran, the podcast that champions Scottish food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this week we have quite the treat for you. Not one, but two world-renowned Michelin star chefs are on this jam-packed episode. I'm joined by Stephen McLaughlin, head chef of Scotland's only two Michelin star restaurant, Restaurant Andrew Fairley, and Michelle Rue Jr. of London's two Michelin star restaurant, Leaker Frosch. Coming up on this episode... I chat to Michelle Rue about his Cross Basket Castle restaurant and what it was like cooking for an idol. And were you worried Alex Ferguson was going to be angry or not like something? <laughs> yeah, give me the hairdryer treatment. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, kind of in a way. But um, I, uh, whenever I bump into him, he, he, oh, he's got an unbelievable memory and really unbelievable memory. Every time I see him, he immediately goes, the venison dish. <laughs> that wasn't a very good uh, Scottish accent, was oh, it? Was okay. I also spoke to Stevie McLaughlin about his career and his first encounter with Andrew Fairley. I wore uh, purple jumbo cords. I wore a purple, white and green striped shirt. I had a purple leather tie on and a black leather jacket. And I was in my head, I was the smartest guy in the world. Interview was organised with the head chef of One Demonstration Gardens, whoever that was. I had no idea. Got to the front door of One Demonstration. Started to get a bit more nervous once I got to the front door. Ding dong, rung the bell, door opened. One of the bellboys was, can I help you? And I went with the head chef. The head chef came and met me, which, well, I thought, really, is this the head chef? He was small. It's the head chef? Turns out it was. Small man, his size, but his actual, you know, his presence was huge. He immediately, I immediately felt something from him. There was a, he had an aura about him. Turns out it was Andrew Fairley. Back in September, I drove to the lovely Cross Basket Castle just outside of Glasgow to meet Michelle Rue Jr. Whilst this interview was a couple of months ago, it really is timeless as we hear about his extraordinary commitment to excellence in the hospitality industry. From his humble French heritage, where he grew up foraging with his dad, to his career highlights cooking for his icons, he also shares his dream dinner party guests and what he thinks of Scottish produce. I'm here in Cross Basket Castle, which is just outside Glasgow, near East Kilbride, with Michelle Rue Jr. Hi, hi there, how are you? I'm good, yourself? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Apart from getting lost. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about why you're here just now? Mm, yeah, so I'm up here in Cross Basket uh, Castle. I'm doing two demos uh, today. So we're doing roast duck uh, with uh, some Scottish rolls uh, and a red wine sauce, and then a passion fruit souffle with coconut ice cream. So I'm demoing those two dishes, and then... Um, everybody sits down and gets to enjoy the, that as well. Uh, and then tonight we've got a special gala dinner 
And so there's five courses with matching wines. And then tomorrow, some more cooking demos. And then I'm going back down to London. Oh, that sounds good. And is that the type of thing that you would normally do when you come up here? Sort of similar? Yes, absolutely. And then it's great to catch up with all the team as well. And we go through and uh, different recipes and different menu changes. And yeah, it's, it's just really good. So just to go right back to the start, what would you say is your earliest food memory? Oh, wow. Food, my earliest food memory was probably, oh, it's got to be vanilla ice cream. I think it was about six, maybe five. My dad was making vanilla ice cream. Back in those days, he, he didn't have any electric, you know, sort of modern machines for churning ice cream. It was a, an old wooden pail with crushed ice, a bit of salt to bring the temperature down an iron cylinder with paddles, wooden paddles, and you had to churn it by hand. And I remember as a, as a child helping Dad to churn the ice cream, so turning the handle. And uh, the most wonderful thing was that there was a big treat at the end when it was ready. And it was that lovely, freshly churned vanilla ice cream. And to this day, vanilla ice cream is my favourite. Nice. That sounds like a real labour of love because there's no, there's no ice cream maker. Absolutely. You had to do it by hand. <laughs> Would you say it was your dad that is your biggest cooking inspiration or has there kind of been any other sort of... Both my father and my uncle. Huge inspirations, obviously. Uh, I remember my uncle uh, at a very, very young age as well. It's another food memory. Watching my uncle practice his sugar work. So making roses, very, very delicate flowers and roses out of sugar and blowing sugar as well as you blow glass. So the same way, making these huge sculptures all out of sugar. And I was in awe. And obviously your family name is synonymous with fine dining and quality cooking. And you've kind of touched on a couple of memories there. But what was that like growing up? Was, was it like food the main sort of... Everything was everything growing up. Food has always been very important uh, in the Rue household, but not, not extravagance. I mean, uh, quite on the contrary. I mean, when my father and mother arrived in England back in 1958, you know, they, they didn't have two pennies to rub together. And, and so it was all about foraging and all about just good, basic quality ingredients cooked very simply. And we used to get food parcels as well from, from the, the, the French family, so the ones that's, that were in France. So we used to get lovely stinky cheese, camembert and garlic sausages and, uh, and, and such like that you, you, you couldn't find in England back in, the, back in the 60s. But I remember going foraging with dad, picking our own mushrooms, fishing in the river and, and uh, in the quarries and, and, and taking back the fish and eating them and then gathering snails as well. And all the locals would look at us and say, oh, those bloody foreigners, look at them, what they're doing. They're eating our snails. So dad would say to them, well, do you want to eat them? <laughs> <laughs> so no, we had great fun, but it was, it was frugal, but, but it, food was always a centre point and very, very important to us. And for anyone that doesn't know, what was it that brought your family over to England? So my, my father worked in Ireland in 1956 for a summer job as a young chef. And uh, he, he loved, uh, he fell in love with horse racing because the, the person that he worked for in Ireland owned horses and the, the British way of life. And then he got another job as a scullery boy at Cliveden. And I think that was in 57. So basic chores of cooking chores and cleaning pots and pans. And again, that was only for three months. And then he was working at the time at the um, English embassy or the British embassy in Paris as a chef. And he said to his head chef there, look, if ever there's an opportunity, in the UK, anywhere in the UK, as a chef in a private house, if he could have a chance to get the job. The chance arose to go and be the private chef 
in a beautiful estate called Fairlawn Estate in Kent. And uh, that was owned by the Cazalet family. And they were horse trainers to the Queen Mum. So they owned uh, lots, well, not owned the horses, uh, but trained the Queen Mother's horses. So my, my father landed a, a great job as a chef and also being passionate about horses and about horse racing. It, it was just a dream come true, a job that he absolutely couldn't refuse. Uh, so he, he arrived in 1958 or 59, I think it was, with mum. And part of the, uh, the, the job as being chef was that you had a little cottage. And I remember the cottage with great fondness. It was a tiny, tiny little cottage. And uh, I, I was born there. Born, I was practically born on the estate, actually, uh, whilst, whilst mum and dad were cooking. <laughs> well, yeah, not your mum wouldn't have been cooking at the time, though. Um, well, she went into labour, actually, helping dad cook. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Dad was on his own in the kitchen cooking for the family, cooking for the fa Cazalet family. And mum was the kitchen help. So yeah. it was just two of them in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Went into labour as, um, as dad was serving lunch. Uh, so rushed off to hospital. And the, the following day, I was back in a professional kitchen. Yeah. No, yeah. So right from, right from being right a newborn. Right from day one. <laughs> how did your career kind of progress then? Um, again, for anyone that doesn't know, how did you kind of start off and where did you go and how did you end up back kind of? Mm, yeah. Well, at the age of 16, I wanted to leave school and after my O-levels. And I, I, I just wanted to, to do an apprenticeship and, and, and work. I didn't want to go into further education. I wasn't particularly, you know, that was okay at school. I, I, I did okay in my O-levels and I could have gone into further education, but it really didn't appeal to me. And what did appeal to me was to follow in my father and my uncle's footsteps. I wanted to be a chef and as soon as possible. And so school leaving age 16, went straight into an apprenticeship in Paris and worked for two years in a pastry shop to learn how to be a pastry chef. And then after that, I worked in several other places in France as a chef. And then I worked in Hong Kong as well, so traveled well, and then came back to work in the family business back in the mid 80s. And then I took over Le Gavroche in the early 90s. That's obviously your main, your main restaurant, but you have, we're here in Cross Basket Castle. Mm. Why was it that you decided to open up here? What is it that you look for when you're kind of opening a new restaurant? Gosh, I, I think it's got to be the same ethos as, as the Rue sort of ethos. So, so always looking, striving for perfection, looking for something special, outstanding. And this place is outstanding. I mean, it really did. It, it takes your breath away. And the owners have invested so much of their time, let alone their money, into this place. And, and it is, it's absolutely beautiful. It's stunning. So, it's always a pleasure to come up here, um, and the team here are brilliant. The front of house are great, and the, the chefs are, you know, are, are just fantastic too. So we work together as a team, and, uh, and I come up here as often as I can. Uh, so I've got two days up here now, and there's another trip planned before the end of the year. Uh, obviously, what with the pandemic, it, it kind of put a spanner in the works, uh, and we missed out on a few months of me coming up here. But uh, it's, it's, it's really, really enjoyable. Yeah, it must be nice to go to London for a bit as well. Yeah, it is nice. I mean, yeah, although it's not a great day today, it's a bit no. grey. But uh, no, it's really lush as well. That's the one thing that, that hits me. Down south in London, it's, it's all dry and all the trees have gone brown already, whereas here it's lovely and green. It's because it rains all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're here in Scotland and your menu will have like, you know, seasonal Scottish food. Mm. What would you say, in your opinion, is the big, biggest misconception about Scottish food? <laughs> Deep fried Mars bars. <laughs> <laughs> Which are quite mythical, like you can't really get them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can. Yeah, I, I had to actually ask one of uh, the, the Scottish chefs that was working for me a few years back to, 
to cook one for me to try it out. And he'd never cooked one either. So, I mean, yeah. But no, no the, the produce in Scotland is second to none. There's some amazing produce. I mean, today I was cooking with Scottish Girolles, so Scottish wild mushrooms, and they're, they're absolutely beautiful, stunning stuff. And, and you know, it, it's great. There's a beautiful larder here and in the land, but there's also wonderful array of fish and seafood on the, coming from the Scottish coast. No, it, it is wonderful to, to cook with local ingredients here. So if you were to be cooking for a dinner party and you could invite any three people, whether or not they're with us, who would they be and why? Oh, good Lord. Okay, let, let's go for a, a sporting theme. Sir Alex Ferguson, Eric Cantona and George Best. Do you know them or knew them? There's, there's a bit of a theme there. There's a the Man United theme there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Man United fan. I've, I've cooked quite a few times for Sir Alex and he loves his food and his wine and he, he is... He's actually been a little bit of an inspiration to me as well because um, he certainly doesn't shy from making hard decisions or tough decisions, but he's also had a, a very gentle hand as well, a gentle touch where necessary, and I think that's something that I've always lo looked up to. Eric Cantona for being such a maverick and a, a Frenchman, mad Frenchman at times, and he loves his food and wine too. And, well, George Best, legendary in, <laughs> yeah, not just in footballing terms, but a, a legend in his, in his ability to to have a good time so i think that would i think all three of them together would would be a really good fun party yeah i think so obviously you've been doing this your whole life i think your daughter is she training to be a chef yeah my daughter is a chef, is yeah, a chef absolutely yeah. has her own restaurant now in notting hill and doing really well yeah someone needs to update your wikipedia page <laughs> <laughs> but what advice would you give anyone thinking of getting into the industry today oh gosh i would say yes Come into the industry. It's it's an amazing, amazing industry. Hospitality, I th I think, has a job for absolutely everybody. Whether you want to be working in you know high end, Michelin starred restaurants, um, or or you want to just be in in a in a regular in you know sort of cooking environment. Fine dining. I hate fine dining as it, you know it, it doesn't define what I'm thinking about. But I think people understand the fine dining, what it is. It's only a very, very small part of the hospitality industry. And there is so much more to it. And it has hospitality industry has so much to offer, I think. And the thing is, I, I truly believe that in the hospitality industry, you can climb up the ladder so quickly. I mean, I, I know of you know, young head chefs and young managers earning very, very good money. Yes, putting the hours in, but earning extremely good money at a very young age. And you get great personal satisfaction out of it too. And you can travel the world. I mean, I, I went to, you know, worked six months in Hong Kong. You know, I, I know a lot of young chefs and young waiters that literally traveled the world and worked their way around the world, you know, in the hospitality industry. So it's, it's wonderful. There's great opportunities everywhere you look. And it's, in this country, it's not really sort of promoted as that kind of career, is it? It's like mm. you become a waiter or waitress when you're at uni or young and then you're kind of encouraged to go out of it. But actually, if you knew you could make some money and travel the world, people might stick at it a bit more. I, I think so as well. And uh, I mean, obviously in France and Italy and Spain and Greece, there are, you know, young, young boys and girls see that as a career and as a, you know, a, an opportunity to make a, a career out of it. Less so here, although it's changing. It, it really is changing. And, and I think the more media, positive media there is about the industry, the better. Yeah. And you've mentioned kind of fine dining and Michelin stars. Do you find it quite stressful or like a pressure to maintain the stars or is it just like, don't really think about it? Yeah, there's always pressure there. And, and it's, uh, 
I suppose you know, a, lot of, a lot of people say it's, it's tough to get the Michelin stars, but it's even tougher to hang on to them. So, yeah, it, it, it is. There's it, always a pressure. It is a shame because I always say to young chefs, you know, don't cook for your stars and, you know, don't cook for that. Don't cook for, for a great review. You know, cook for your guests and your customers. Make sure that they're happy and that they're coming back. If they're happy and they're coming back, then you're on the right track and you're doing, doing well. And then the plaudits will come. And, you know, it's not the be-all and end-all to have Michelin stars. It certainly isn't. Far better to have a, a good business. At the end of the day, you're actually making money and making enough money to pay yourself. And that's, that's very important because if you haven't got a successful business, then you've got nowhere to work and you've got nowhere to, to cook. Yeah. And you've mentioned vanilla ice cream, but what would you say is your food guilty pleasure if it's not that? I do like ice cream. I do. I do. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. That, that's always, you know, two words that shouldn't really be together, should they? Because, you know, <laughs> if it's pleasurable, it shouldn't be guilty, should it, really? You shouldn't feel any guilt over. Especially when it comes to food as well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no. I, I have got a, I wouldn't say I've got a sweet tooth, but yeah, I, I love chocolate, but good quality chocolate. Yeah, not cheap confectionery. You've been on the TV um, quite a few times. Do you have a favourite TV moment or TV show? I think all the TV work that I've done, I, I've, I've really enjoyed. Gosh, very difficult. I mean, MasterChef was, was wonderful. And to be able to, to mentor and, and to inspire young chefs to, you know, to achieve their goal is, is something that I really take pride in and enjoy. All of the finalists, actually, not, not just the winners of MasterChef, the professionals, when I was there, and I was there for eight seasons, I'm, I'm still in touch with. Some of them I've employed and some of them still work for me. It is something that I... I I take pride in and really enjoy. Mm -hmm. It's a great TV show as well. Mm -hmm. You get really into it. <laughs> and uh, what would you say is your career highlight to date? Career highlight? Um, that's very difficult to, to pinpoint because there have, there have been so many. And I, I think that's another thing about, about our industry and about the hospitality industry, that you get to meet so many amazing people. Seeing, seeing people in your restaurant or that you've cooked for or that you've, you've served that, that are happy. Uh, I think is, is, is one of the things that, that's, that makes our industry different from others. That's the kind of pleasure that you can get from our industry. Standout moments. Cooking for Sir Alex Ferguson the first time was, was lovely. Uh, and to coin one of his phrases, it was squeaky bum time. Uh, <laughs> oh, I can because, imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah to, to get it right for him. But uh, yeah, it's, there's many. Because I, I get as much pleasure cooking for a well-known, famous person as anybody else because at the end of the day, everybody is equal when they come to the restaurant and should be treated in the same way. And were you worried Alex Ferguson was going to be angry or not like <laughs> yeah, something? <laughs> give me the hairdryer treatment. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, kind of in a way. But um, uh, uh, whenever I bump into him, he, he, oh, he's got an unbelievable memory, a, a really unbelievable memory. Every time I see him, he immediately goes, the venison dish. <laughs> that wasn't a very good <laughs> Scottish accent, was oh, no, it? Oh, was okay. He remembers a venison, a particular venison dish that I cooked for him. And we're going back probably about 15 or so years, maybe even more years ago. And he, his mind was blown away by it. And there was a particular sauce with it and everything. And every time I see him, he just, ah. <laughs> and he, it's stuck in his memory, which is, which is wonderful, yeah. isn't it? it? You know, it's, it's so, so good. Did he ask you for the recipe? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just see him trying to cook venison. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Good thank to you. talk to you. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Also back in September, I joined a Skype call and chatted to Stevie McLaughlin. 
Another amazing chef dedicated to cooking top quality cuisine at arguably the best restaurant in the country, Restaurant Andrew Fairley. He chats to me about why work ethic and integrity are key to success in the hospitality industry, why he tries to put mustard on everything, and how even now working at Glen Eagle still takes his breath away. Uh, hi Stevie. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, very good, thanks. Good. So obviously we've had a quick chat before on the podcast to do with coronavirus, but um, I just wanted to come back to you to have more of a conversation about your career and some highlights and kind of where you got to where you are today. So we'll just kick off. What would be your earliest food memory? My earliest food memory? Yeah. <laughs> Go right back to the start. Right back to the start. I tell you what, actually, my mother's uh, tripe and onions. Which I would say nice, but I don't know. <laughs> no, listen, gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I wouldn't give it to my kids now. She gave it to me and it was, I, I loved it. I loved the smell of it, cooking. She bought blanched tripe and would bake it in milk with sliced onions and a bay leaf. Mm-hmm. And the smell of it was amazing. I used to I used to love the texture of it as well. Tripe and onions is one of these things that you think it's, it's not as minging, it's not it's not good, but it's it's lovely. Nice tripe cooked properly is lovely. And I feel like things things like that, maybe not that specifically, but kind of different cuts of meat that weren't really popular before are kind of coming back, aren't they? And like bone marrow and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Fat. Using fat properly is delicious. Yeah. And people used to be scared of it, but now it's actually got quite a lot of Fat's a good thing. In the right hands and giving it to the right person to cook, the right people to eat, it's lovely. You mm. wouldn't sit and have a bucket of it, but certainly to fat is, fat's flavour. It's not a fallacy. Fat, fat is flavour. Who or what is your biggest cooking inspiration? My biggest cooking inspiration is Andrew Fairley, without mm. doubt. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm lucky to be in the position where I am just now through Andrew's commitment to my education and his nurturing of my talent but also Andrew giving me the freedom to be as successful as I wanted to be. And just to go right back to the start of your career how did you get into the industry like what what was it that sort of prompted you to start to work towards becoming a chef? I was a school leaver at fourth year into fifth year I, was, I wasn't going to stay on and do hires I did one hire I booked myself in for one hire craft and design in fifth year which there was nine parts to that hire I did the first of nine parts Obviously, didn't didn't achieve it. As a school leaver, people that were in the same boat as I, who didn't really know what they wanted to do, I had to sit with the skill seekers in the library of the school and give them my give them my mum's job, my dad's job, my likes, my dislikes, etc. And then I got a printout that said, "You're going to be a chef or a welder." And I went, "Okay, cool. I'm going to be a chef or a welder. Fine, no worries. Fancy this welding, whatever it is." And then from there, I was enrolled in a single day day release type course at Annie's Land College and it was we broke for lunch they showed us three types of welding the guy that was taking the class was a total tartar merchant um I was hooked so I had I had cut things I had welded things together three different types of welding I'd learned probably more than those three hours that I had in the last three years possibly so by lunchtime I thought wow that's it that's it I'm a welder in the afternoon, we went into a almost like a home economics type class where there was a home economics teacher stroke chef she made shoe pastry um we tasted it and when i tasted that shoe pastry i went oh my god what what is that i want to learn how to do that and i was much more curious into that than i was i mean the welding was like okay i'll do that but there was something sparked a little bit of curiosity sparked what's that but i went to i went to glasgow college of food technology for two years uh, on the back of 
on the back of the um, on the back of the shoe pastry. Because uh, back in those days, there weren't things like uh, the Great British Bake Off, where you just see people making shoe pastry all the time. <laughs> yeah. It was very practical, and it was you kind know, of supposedly you can teach people how what you can teach people what things taste like, what should things taste like, and the texture of things. But you have to have something in you that you put in your mouth, and you go, "Wow, what is that?" I was hooked on the on the buttery flaky pastry. Curiosity, really, kind of almost kind of. I was excited at the well at, at the prospect of being a welder, and that's kind of when I thought my vocation was going to be. But then, the, actually, the subtleties of the texture and flavour of the pastry was just a, 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 a different feeling from that moment. And where did you get your first job? My first job was. I had a lecture my first year lecture at college was a man called William Pike who kind of set me on the path he had friends throughout the Glasgow restaurant scene he got me a job part time in a restaurant down on Clyde Street called The Trading Post and the irony of this restaurant was that you cooked your own steak the chef didn't cook your dinner you cooked your own steak on tables that were inserted with barbecues looking over the River Clyde so I thought, I, I look back to the line and think, my, my first job was in a restaurant, but the chef didn't cook anything. So yeah, that, that was in there. I was in charge of the salad bar, and I was in charge of the festival bar, and I was in charge of snap tea when I worked in there part time. And again, that was brilliant. I thought that, that I thought this was the best restaurant in Glasgow, and the experience, the people that were there, the characters as well, was one of the things I kind of latched onto as well. The vibe, the vibe of the kitchen. And on the podcast, uh, when we last spoke, you said that um, you used to travel past one Devonshire Gardens on your way to college and it became like a sort of dream place to work so can you just tell me a little bit more about that how did you go from the state place to one Devonshire? So the first I mean when I was in the trading post that was my first year of college part of part of the second year part of the actual course was to find a placement so I was taking the bus and by this stage I was two years into it so I'd been you know reading the right magazines and doing the right research and getting exposed to what else is out there other than the trading post steakhouse and by this stage I was I knew that one day gardens was the best place in town picked up articles in the evening times and things like that which I was reading and also you know just my you know natural yearning for you know lust for knowledge was I was reading re- reading books you know Michelle Rue books and things like that it's what I was it's what I was getting turned on by and going past one day gardens I knew that was the best place I knew I wanted to be a good chef in order to work in order to be a good chef you had to work in the good places so I applied for work placement there in one Demonstration Gardens, year of college. I get dolled up in my best clover, like a 60-year-old best clover. I can actually remember what I wore that day. It's bizarre. I wore a purple jumbo cords. I wore a purple, white and green striped shirt. I had a purple leather tie on and a black leather jacket. And I was in my head, I was the smartest guy in the Interview was organised with the head chef of One Devonshire Gardens, whoever that was, I have no idea. Got to the front door of One Devonshire, started to, started to get a bit more nervous once I got to the front door. A big difference from driving along Great Western Road and looking in and thinking what's there. But now you're on the front doorstep, <laughs> ding dong, rung the bell, door opened. One of the bellboys was, can I help you? An appointment with the head chef, come in, waited, the head chef came and met me, which... Well, and I, I thought, really, is this the head chef? It was small. Is the head chef? Turns out it was. Tiny, small man, his size, but his actual, you know, his presence was huge. He immediately, I immediately felt something from him. Can't really put into words what 
I believe from that that instant he immediately I immediately got something from him. There was a he had an aura about him. Um, turns out it was Andrew Fairley, and he, we had a chat. He put me through my paces. He asked me questions that I didn't, well, I wasn't prepared for. Um, I gave him the answer, and I, and I think I was speaking from the heart and combining that with nerves. He took me in on every Thursday working college hours, every Thursday. So I'd be picking salad, I'd be, you know, serving mashed potatoes, really mundane stuff, but actually loved being in the kitchen, being dressed like a chef. My uniform at One Demonstration Gardens was slightly different from what I wore at college, and it was it was a smarter jacket. And my apron was quite apron as well, whereas at college I had a book apron. I was a bit smarter and I just felt more of a chef. I felt more of a team. Um, and I really enjoyed the buzz of the lunch service. And then from that Thursday, that then rolled into part-time. I was working Tuesday and Thursdays with some Fridays on part-time with a wage, tiny wage, but learning and tasting and being shown things and working hard. And then from there, Andrew had said, when an opportunity arises to come on full-time, then I'll bear you in mind. So there was no position then for me full-time. So I went and I worked for a year at the Glasgow Malmaison, which is almost like a sister restaurant, if you will. It was the same owner at the time, Mr McCulloch. So I had been, I think at the time, Andrew farmed me here so that when there was availability, he brought me back in. So, so as I say, a year at the Mal, which was great. It's a different restaurant, different working environment, a bit a lot busier, less refined, much more of a, a, a heavier workload. I suppose I grew up a little bit in that year there as well, and then moved back to one day Gardens where I started my career as a as a chef almost. And do you think that year out was quite important? Like you say, you kind of grew up a bit. Was it kind of important to get that other experience and move away and then come back? Yeah. Yeah, but that's knowing. I mean, I, but that's knowing knowing Andrew and the way he worked over the last. You know, working with Andrew for twenty six years, that wasn't a fluke. That was something that Andrew had thought, right, okay, you're not quite ready for this. Go and do that. So even then he was managing me to go and do this, you're going to learn other skills here that you, that that will that will enhance your you know, your you know, your chances of success here. Because I think he, I think I think from that first meeting, I definitely I felt something in him, but I think he saw something in me as well. I think there was a work ethic that he liked about me. I think there was an honesty and an integrity that he liked about me as a as a young man. I I, I had nothing else to offer, um, apart from you know, the honesty and the integrity that he was looking for. And that's kind of what we look for now as well when we're bringing people into the restaurant is, you know, we're not looking for brilliant chefs. We're looking for honest people that, you know, like-minded people that want to join in with what we do. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I th- I've read that you've, this work ethic that you have, did that come from your dad? Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, my father was, I mean, he would tell me that he wouldn't let me away with murder. No, he would always, he would, he, there was things he would let go. There was things he would just, you know, just pull my tail on and go, maybe you shouldn't have done it that way. That was kind of his way of pulling rank, if you will. But what he always said to me was, you, you can do what you want, but as long as you get up in the morning and you go to work. Yeah. And that was that. So that, that, that for me is a kind of, that's, a, that's, that's almost a life motto for me. It's fine, do what you do, but up and go to work. And just to come back to um, food and Scottish food, what would you say, in your opinion, is the biggest misconception about Scottish food? Because I think I think the world probably sees Scottish food different from what actual Scottish people see. <laughs> Scottish yeah. food, that's. I think Scottish people. I think Scot Scotland in general, Scotland in general misses the quality 
They don't actually get to see the quality of Scottish food that is in their country that's on their doorsteps because so much of it leaves the country. So much of it is sent abroad. Shellfish, for example, you know, game at this time of the year, game is one of the things that we champion in the restaurant. It's something game, game at home now on a Sunday's I mean, roasting, roasting grouse for the four of us on a Sunday's it's just expecting. But there's so many, there's so many people who still buy from supermarkets where the quality's not there and they miss the fact that there's brilliant quality. You have to hunt for it and look for it. And yes, it's a bit more expensive. But I think a lot of people miss the actual, you know, you know, the essence of the quality of the produce that's on our doorstep. Not really their fault though, I would say. It's not it's not wholly it's not wholly the consumer's fault. And would you the best place to go for things like game like that, would it be like a butcher or specialist shop? For things like that, I would definitely speak to specialist suppliers. Yeah. You know, if you are wanting great quality, then I wouldn't necessarily go to a fishmonger for language things. You probably have to do a bit more homework and a bit more research. The reality is you're gonna have to dig a little bit dig a little bit deeper into your pocket as well. But there's plenty of plenty of people you can get in touch with that can put you in contact with great wet fish, great fish as well that, that you know that the that the you know the, well, the supermarkets definitely don't see and fishmongers perhaps don't see. You, you ultimately you want to be buying fresh. It doesn't need to be big or grand, but as something like this, something something like a langoustine, for example, fresh is best. I mean, out out the sea and simply cooked is 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 the best way to treat it and eat it. And just to go back to another sort of thought provoking question, if you could invite any three people, whether they're with us or not, to a dinner party, who would they be and why? Three people to a dinner party. Yeah. I would have three people. Me and I think I'd sit. I'd sit down with my wife, I'd sit down with my two kids, and that would be me just fine. So you're doing that all the time then? <laughs> every every night's your dream dinner party? Well, I'm not, but that's the thing, I'm not at home every night. I'm, oh, I'm, of course. I'm working, so Sundays, so Sunday evening is our special event. Sunday evening is our, our dinner party, our private function, if you will. That's that's that, that's a very, very special occasion for us. Must have been nice in lockdown then to get some time. Superb, and we'll never get it again. We'll never get it again until I, until I retire. But by the time I retire, the kids will be long gone, you know, hopefully. So we've just kind of talked briefly through your career there, but what advice would you give anyone thinking of getting into the industry today? I think what you have to do is you have to find a, you have to find a kitchen, you have to find a chef where you're going to learn something every day. It doesn't matter what that is you're learning. It, it could be a knife skill, it could be a people skill, it could be how to wear your uniform properly, it could be how to answer the phone properly. It could be how to log into a computer. You have to be somewhere where you're learning something every single day. One thing. It's probably good advice for all jobs as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what's your favourite Scottish ingredient to cook with? Varies. This time of year, I love... It's funny, I was having this conversation with the guys the other day. Grouse, I never used to like grouse at all. I never used to get it. But now I love, I love grouse. Um, a whole roast grouse. And again, with... You know, a simple watercress salad and a really, really good bread sauce does me fine. Langoustine, roasted langoustine, slightly, slightly crispy on the outside, nice and opaque in the middle. It's funny, right? Because at the restaurant, we do langoustines at this time of year. Scottish seafood, Scottish shellfish, Scottish langoustines at this time of year is superb. So we are serving langoustines every night. And I look down 
as I'm plating these langoustines and genuinely every day I think, I wonder how many of these I can eat because they're so good and it's it's the thing where you you know you put yourself in the customer's shoes when you're cooking and when you're serving, you wonder what they think about this. I on the langoustine, I know what they think about that. They know it and I, I know when the plate comes to the table and the cloche comes off, the aroma of the roasted shellfish and then when they put it in their mouth, the sweetness and just that light crisp texture of it, they're never, they're never going to taste a langoustine like that in all their puff. Sounds amazing. But it's simple things that are done properly that you can serve to anybody at any time. And do you have a food guilty pleasure? Oh yeah, mustard. I'm a sucker for mustard. Do you put it on everything? I would, not everything. <laughs> it goes on things that it probably shouldn't go on. It's a bit like uh, we're a big sriracha fan in this household and it goes on a lot of things it probably shouldn't. Yeah, I'm kind of past sriracha to be honest with you. I like sriracha but mustard, I always come back to mustard. There's always a selection of mustards in the house. Nobody else in the house tastes, likes mustard. It's, it's the fire, so we tend to have hot mustard in the house and I try to sneak it into stuff. So if, I make, so if I'm roasting grouse and I'm putting a wee bit of mustard in the bread sauce, then somebody will say, there's mustard in it, isn't there? No, no, no mustard. <laughs> so I, I try and sneak mustard into everything. And what's your favourite thing about restaurant Andrew Fairley, now that you're back? The people, without doubt. We had been back for a week in, in advance, getting down risk assessments and you know planning how we're going to bring the team back. But the day, the actual first day that I was in the whites in the kitchen, everybody's in their uniform and standing in the kitchen, and I did a 360, a slow 360, looking around at everybody. It was quite emotional. It was such, such a good feeling to be back in the restaurant with all our people. And we've, we've talked a little bit about game, but how does Glen Eagle's location influence the menu? Because I imagine, you know, you're in Perthshire, you're kind of in the hills and stuff. Like you, You'll be able to obviously get quite a lot of stuff from that location. Yeah, we take from, you know, we take... The first thing we do is we look for the best quality we can get. You know, if the best quality is on our doorstep, if it's set mushrooms from Ochterardon, then that's local. But local for us is Scotland. You know, Perthshire, there's Aberdeenshire, there's the Borders, there's Dumfries, there's, you know, there's various different areas. Local for us is Scotland. We seek to buy the best we can. So if our, if our lamb is coming from Aberdeenshire, then, you know, that's a weird thing with that, you know. If our game's coming from two or three different suppliers, they'll pick, you know, they'll select their best quality for us. But local local wins every time. And genuinely, hand in my heart, so much of it is Scottish. We don't have to go. We don't have to go out out with Scotland to get produce, you know. That fills you with pride as well. And it also gives you confidence that it's, you know, I, we live by the motto at the restaurant, simple things brilliantly done. So the quality of ingredients that we get in, we don't do too much to them we look to we look to showcase the ingredient but then equally as chefs we need to be creative and we and you know we ask ourselves how can we how can we make this taste better we don't want uh your roll to taste of something else it needs to taste of like needs to taste of your roll but how can we make how can we make this better mm-hmm. it's what we look to do and what would you say has been your career highlight so far career highlight so far you know, a huge amount of pride that we've been working at the level we're working at for such a such a lengthy period of time, you know. I wake up in the morning and, I, and, I, and I'm proud to work where I work. So I think that as an achievement is, you know, to be working in a place as long as I've been and to be as proud now as I was, you know, on day one is, 
that's a real highlight for me, you know. It's such a lovely location as well. Every time I've gone to Glen Eagles and you drive up, you think, oh, it'd be just amazing to do this all the time. I was out three Sundays ago. The weather was fantastic. And we were out on the bikes with the kids up and down the paths of the, in, in between the golf courses, and they were oblivious. It was like a roller coaster ride for them. I was, I kept stopping and looking at the hotel. I've not seen the hotel from those from those angles for a couple of years, and it was a busy day. There was lots of people in the golf course, lots of cars, lots of people out walking, and just looking at the hotel shining in in this little valley that is Glen Eagles. And again, it was it, it just kind of came back to me truly a you know a truly iconic world class location. I took that into work on Monday and I told everybody what I saw. It was still so, so proud to be working in the restaurant where I was working and that, and that, that restaurant is inside, you know, a restaurant's held inside a place like Glen Eagles Hotel. And just getting away from Glen Eagles a little bit, you're an ambassador for Albert Bartlett Potatoes. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Hey, Albert Bartlett. There's a lot of teas in there, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of teas. <laughs> How did this come about um, and why did you decide to champion them? Well, this is a relationship where, you know, Albert Bartlett Potatoes had Andrew Fairley on board as their Scottish ambassador. And I suppose what I have done, I'm fortunate enough to have inherited the role in Andrew's passing. I've got a very good working relationship with Albert Bartlett Roosters in the first case anyway. So, I mean, Andrew would be doing, Andrew would be doing work with Albert Bartlett's over the years and I would be, you know, in the periphery working with the people at Bartlett. So there was a natural progression for the baton to be handed over to me. And again, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's continuing Andrew's legacy and it's also been able to work with such a great company as Albert Bartlett. Great. And we've actually, I'll share this on the Intel app, but we've got some recipes from you. Um, I'm going to make the Cullen skink fish pie. It looks really good, especially in weather like this. Thanks to my guests, Michelle Rue Jr. and Stevie McLaughlin, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of Scran. Like any foodie, I'm always looking for that five-star review, so please rate, review and subscribe to Scran. Scran is a laudable production and is available wherever you get your podcasts, but for immersive and interactive content, you can download the Entail app. Scran is presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morvan McIntyre.